Welcome to the King of Glory Lutheran Church Education Podcast. We are a Christian community of faith located in Williamsburg, Virginia. For more information, please visit us on the web at kogva.org. Let's begin our prayer. It's on the, uh, on the screen. Get we pray. Let me never think of the eternal Father that I am here to say. And let me so remember that I am a stranger and pilgrim on earth. For here we have now no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Preserve me by thy grace, O Lord. So losing myself in the joys of earth, that I may have no longer left for the purer joys of heaven. Let not the happiness of this day become a snare to my too worldly heart, and if instead of happiness I have today suffered any disappointment or defeat, if there has been any sorrow or I have hopes for joy, or sickness where I had looked for health, give me grace to accept it from my hand as a loving reminder that this is not my home. And God's people say, Amen. Okay. Um, That's a good prayer for today because there will either be happiness or suffering for me. That's right. God doesn't care. (laughs) Philip, it's your guy. No, him this time. Oh! Oh! Yes, sir. I discovered that there is a great dividing line in terms of age when it comes to the nickname of this hymn. (laughs) <laughs> Who knows what sanferized means? I mean, it, it was a treatment for permanent pressing. <laughs> That's right. Early, when I was a little boy, uh, sanferized, my mother always looked for sanferized material because it did not shrink. And so this hymn, this hymn got the nickname of the sanferized hymn. So, um, and I discovered that um, as unfamiliar as the word is, the hymn is also unfamiliar. But we're going to try to sing it anyway. Oh, oh for a faith that will not shrink, but by many a foe, will not tremble on the brink Reformed epistemology. 
And you might be like, well, Reformed, this isn't a Presbyterian church. Um, it, it gets the name Reformed because the philosopher um, who developed it, named Alvin Plantinga, was very inspired by John Calvin, and he thought he got some of the ideas from the writings of John Calvin. But there's nothing particular to Calvinism about this idea, and I think any Christian, regardless of your connection or lack thereof to Calvinism, could accept uh, accept this idea. So uh, don't let the name scare scare you off, right? Okay. Um, so what is the idea? The, the basic idea is that theistic belief or belief in God and Christian belief in particular can be rational without being inferred from prior beliefs or arguments. So you can be rational or reasonable in holding Christian beliefs without having some prior belief or argument that justifies them or makes them rational. So that's the idea, and I'll try to explain why that, why that might make sense. Um, so some beliefs are rational because they are inferred from other rational beliefs. So suppose I'm walking around campus and I see that everyone's carrying an umbrella. I might infer it's supposed, oh, it's probably supposed to rain today. Too bad I didn't bring my umbrella. Um, so that, in that case, I believe it's probably supposed to rain today uh, because of a previous belief, the belief that everyone's carrying an umbrella. So in that case, the belief it's probably going to rain today is justified or made rational by a previous belief that I inferred it from. But you might notice that not all beliefs can be like that. You can't go, up, go backwards forever. Right? You, can't, um, you can't do an infinitely long chain of reasoning. When you're doing reasoning, you have to have some starting points. You have to have something you can start from, right? I can't, um, you know, I can reason my way to the belief that um, it's probably going to rain today, but I can't reason my way to every belief that I have because I need somewhere to start. Does that make sense? You need some, some kind of starting point. Our minds are not big enough to go infinitely far, right? We have to start with something. Um... So, then this notion um, is the notion of properly basic beliefs. Beliefs that are rational without being based on or inferred from other beliefs. So, so if we're going to be reasonable in forming conclusions, we had to have some reasonable starting points. So there must be some beliefs that are reasonable, even though they're not justified by other previous beliefs. Some beliefs are properly basic. They're reasonable, even though they're not justified by any previous argument or any previous belief. Does that make sense, that idea? Yes? Uh, what's it, is the definition of epistemology the study of what? A study of knowledge, yeah. So, well, you know, study, so philosophers use epistemology for like, um, questions like, what is knowledge? What is it reasonable to believe? Uh, these type of questions, yeah. Uh, yes. I'm just on the one you just said. Yeah. I'm sorry, it wasn't about what Jim said. So if you had sure. to say, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Are you saying that these would be universally believed? Properly basic, or could it vary? That's a great question. I think it can vary from person to person. So I think for me, that there's a table in the room is properly basic. I, you know, I'm justified in believing that there's a table here. I don't have to give you some further argument. But if you're out in the hallway blindfolded, it wouldn't be properly basic for you because you're not having the experience that I'm having. So I think it will vary from person to person. And that will be important for when we talk about religious beliefs. So that's a great, a very good question. Yeah. So you might be like, wait a minute, what are these, what kinds of things could be a properly basic belief? Why would some things, why would I just be allowed to start out believing some things? Um, so here's like some examples of things you might think are properly basic. So, um, it's normally wrong to hurt people for fun. Uh, that's, you might think, I don't have any deeper argument for that. That's just my basic moral commitment, right? It's just, you shouldn't hurt people for fun, you know? 
Um, you need a better reason than that if you're going to hurt somebody. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so, you might think that's just a basic belief I have, right? Um, two plus two is four. Now, there's probably some deeper mathematical proof for two plus two equals four, but I don't know what it is. When I, when I think about it, I just go, yep, and I'll start, I'll start with, that, with that thought, right? Yeah. But aren't those learned behaviors? You know, children, right? maybe without their parents' tutoring, you know, they don't know right. it's not okay to go push a kid down and hurt him because it seems funny when you see him fall down. Yeah. So some of these are learned, but you know, maybe learned behavior still supports... Yeah, good. So it might be that... Um, extrapolating something you don't know. Yeah. It might be that uh, you needed to have been raised right in order to have these as properly basic. Or so, you know, if I had, you know, you know, growing up like Tarzan or something, I might not see that it's wrong to hurt people for fun. You know, so it might mean that you need to be in the right environment or something. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And that's another way they could vary from from person to person. Yeah. Yeah. It would seem to me that two plus two is four is not really basic okay. because it starts with. You have to know what two means and what four, right. four means. Good. So, I would say even something like, I can't walk through walls. The, yeah. the child or toddler learn, has to learn that. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, um, it, it, something can be, so the fact that something's basic doesn't necessarily mean that you don't still have to know what the words mean, right? So, um, if I didn't know what the word table meant, then it couldn't be basic for me that there's a table in front of me. So that's that's a very good point. But then the question is, once you have the thought, so you need to know what the words mean to even really have the thought. Right? But then once you have the thought, um, do you need some further justification for it, or is it just, you know, basically is it just primitively appropriate for you? Um, but I mean, so one thing you guys are pushing is maybe you need to go deeper. You know, maybe it's not that there's a table here, but it's something even more basic than that, that's what's really basic, right? Um, that's really properly basic. Um, but that's consistent with there still being something, like maybe the meaning of a certain word, or something, or maybe it's, um, you know, things my mother tells, tells me are likely to be true, so when she tells me I can't walk through walls, that's like, you know, it might be something else that's the basic thing, right? But you still need something to, to be basic, right? Um, so why, what would separate things that could be properly basic from things that couldn't be properly basic, right? If we want to say, yeah, you can't have some of these properly basic beliefs, what could separate them? Um, so one answer is things that seem true are, can be properly basic. Whereas thing, you know, so if something seems true to you, you're allowed to take it as properly basic. I should say, um, to be properly basic doesn't mean that you never give it up. It's like you could start out believing something, but then you got enough counter evidence, you would give it up. But if something's properly basic, you're allowed to at least start out believing it until you get uh, counter evidence. So um, think about my belief that there's a table, a table in front of me. Well, why do I believe that? I think I believe it because it seems true to me. When I, I have this, I look this way, I have this visual experience that causes it to seem to me that there's a table in front of me. What if your mother told, yeah. you, told you it was a chair? Yeah. <laughs> then I wouldn't know what the word table meant, so I wouldn't have that seeming. So you're right that in order to even have these seemings, we have to understand certain ideas, or you have to understand the notion of the table before you can even have uh, the seeming of the table, or the seeming that there's a table. If you thought this was a chair, um, you would have the seeming that there, you, know, you would put it in terms of there, it seems like there's a chair there, right? But you, you would just mean something different by the word chair than the rest of us do, right? My mother would be accused of telling me a falsehood. Yeah. <laughs> right. Your mother's tricking you about the meaning of a word, and that's mixing up how you put your, your semen. You would still have a seeming that a thing shaped like this was here. You just wouldn't be able to label it correctly as, as a table. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, so, some seeming, sometimes things seem true. Uh, Pastor Keenan was telling me seeming is not a normal word. 
So I'll put it in terms of something seeming true. You know, uh, we philosophers use this word seeming, and the regular are like, what is that? You know? So uh, Philip uh, sent this to me so we could reproduce it, and I changed all the seeming words to feeling. <laughs> but when I got to the fourth one, I said, yeah. wait a minute, he wouldn't do this four times in a row, would he? So I went back and changed all of everything back to seeming. It right. was a brand new... Yeah, yeah, but maybe feeling is a better word because you know, it's like. No, no. no okay. well, because there was a lady. There was a lady in early class. Yeah. Uh, Nigel's Nigel's wife, Nigel Brown's wife, came and said, "As soon as I it it clicked for me that that's what I've been trying to name." Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So one person got it. Uh, <laughs> it's something that. When you have a certain experience, it's sort of represented as true to you in the experience. When you have this experience this, of your visual field in front of you, it's represented as true to you that there's a table in front of you, right? Um, so that's what we're going for. So a lot of times it's through your senses that you get these seemings or things that seem true to you. But you can also get them just intellectually, right? So if you just think about... 2 plus 2 equals 4, or it's bad to hurt people for fun. Those are not coming through your senses, but you might still have that they just feel true or seem true when you think about them. Yes? Does, does the term that you use, seeming, yeah. does it imply a humility that I may not know? It Is implied, that why you yeah. have that? Very good. It at least it leaves it open. Okay. Right. So, as I, you know, I said, a properly basic belief is one that you start out with, but you could end up giving it up. So even though it seems true, so you're probably familiar with the fact that there are illusions, right? You can have a visual illusion where the stick looks bent in the water, but it isn't, right? And so that would be a seeming that led you astray. So you might go, oh, there's a bent stick, but then you walk over and realize it was an illusion and you would give up that seeming. So they, they aren't, for something to seem true doesn't guarantee that it's true, it just gives you a starting point. Um, but you might give it up later. Yeah, good. Um, well, this is a lot, there's a lot of this going around, you know. I feel this, or I right, have intuition, right. and they don't want to give it up when the facts are presented. Good. So, so there's a difference between intellectual and this intuition, emotional. Yeah. Thing. Good. So the, the, the question is, well, aren't there people who are just too um, too committed to what feels right to them and don't give it up when they should, right? And I think that can definitely happen. You can be too stubborn in sticking to your seemings or intuitions or feelings when you get counter evidence. So it doesn't mean you stick to it no matter what. I yeah, still believe it. that is a chair. Yeah, good, okay. But you can also not be stubborn enough. Remember I told you guys a couple weeks ago, all of my students, I gave them one skeptical argument, and they all said, okay, maybe I don't know I'm really in the classroom. I really believe yeah. that's the original photo. It was right. Photoshop. Right. No yeah. thing yeah. Photoshop. Right. Yeah. It sounds to me like we're talking politics now. Yeah, I mean, this is relevant in all the domains of life. Um, we're on the fringe. Yeah. But you can be too stubborn or not stubborn enough. I think somebody who immediately says, okay, maybe I don't know if I'm really in the classroom, I think they aren't stubborn enough in sticking enough, in sticking to what seems seems right. So it's a, it's a balance. Actually, I was talking about ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's one answer. That's the answer I like, is the seeming's answer. Um, another answer that uh, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga gives is that properly basic beliefs are rational uh, because we are properly functioning when we come to believe them. So the idea here is God designed me so that when I have an experience like this, I believe there's a table in front of me. Uh, but God designed you that when you think about so that when you think about two plus two is four, you go, oh yeah, sounds right. Um, and so, on that view, for a belief to be rational is for it, is is for it to be that your mind is working correctly when you form the belief. So a properly basic belief is one that is formed by a properly functioning mind. Your mind is working correctly when it goes, oh yeah, 2 plus 2 is 4. 
If somebody's mind said, oh yeah, the 2 plus 2 is 7, then their mind would not be properly functioning, and it wouldn't be a properly basic belief. The interesting thing about that view is you can't always tell from the inside whether you're properly functioning or not. So that's the, the uh, difference. Yeah. Well, one question I've got is kind of basic. I yeah. over initially because I thought we might get... Sure. What is the connection with reformed? When you say reformed epistemology yeah. or reformed... Yeah. What does a reform So mean? it's just the historical source of the idea. Where So uh, planning up, he called it his, his model the Aquinas-Calvin model because he thought he got it from Aquinas and from Calvin. And so he called it Reformed Epistemology because of the inspiration of Calvin. Um, but, as I said, I don't think you have to be a Calvinist or anything like that to accept. Uh, I think you can be a good Lutheran and, and, and accept this, this idea, too. Um, I'm not a Calvinist, and I still like this, this idea. Um, okay. So... Um, so there's two stories for why they're rational, these properly basic beliefs. One is the seemings idea, you're allowed to start out trusting something that seems true. Another is this properly functioning idea. But almost everybody, and this is important I think, is almost everyone will give you, yeah, there have to be some properly basic beliefs. Why? Because you got to stop, you got to start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. Now here's the idea of Reformed Epistemology. Maybe belief in God, or maybe particularly Christian beliefs, can be properly basic, too. So just like a belief like, you know, you know, there's a table in front of me, or I'm in the classroom, could be properly basic. Similarly, belief there's a God who loves me, or Jesus died for my sins, could be properly basic. So that's the idea of, of Reformed epistemology. So, give, to give a couple examples. So sometimes when I'm worshiping in church, I will, it will just strongly seem true to me that Jesus died for me. Right? Or that um, Jesus loves me. Or Jesus cares for me. Or things like this. Um, another example. Sometimes when I'm grieving or in pain, I will have a sense uh, that God is there with me, comforting me. It will seem to me that I'm not alone, that God is there with me. Um, um, yeah. Some of you know um, that John uh, had stints. What, what's his last name? McDermott. John McDermott. And he was in early class, and after class, he, he described that exactly wow. during, one of the, during the procedures of how there was this incredible, um, he said it felt like the, the ha hand of God that was pressing on him, and when that came, all his worries went away, and when the hand lifted, they came back. It was, it was just, and my hope is that he's going to, I asked him to write it down, and my hope is that we can share that with you all next week, what his, what his experience was. Because next week we're going to be talking about near-death experiences. And so it wasn't a near-death experience, but it was certainly a deeply right. spiritual moment for him. I'm sorry. No, good. Okay. No, that's, that's a good example. Um, yes, absolutely. For him, it was for John McDermott. Um, so, according to Reformed Epistemology, I might be justified in accepting those things that seem true to me as basic beliefs. So the fact that when I'm in church, it seemed to me that um, Jesus died for me. I could say, oh, you know, that's going to be a basic belief for me, just like uh, there's a table in front of me, or 2 plus 2 is 4. It's going to be a basic belief for me. And it's justified in the same way, by seeming true to me. Um, at ju just in the same way that these other things, like there's a table in front of me, seems true to me. Um, any initial thoughts about this idea? Yeah. So the term seems to me, yeah. is that the same as saying I believe? No, good. It, it's not the same as that. Um, it could be, you might end up believing things that don't seem true to you. You might, when you think about it, oh, it doesn't seem right, but you end up saying, oh, there's such good evidence for it. I'm going to believe it anyway. Um, so seeming right, if seeming true is like a, it, when you have a certain experience, a certain Thing just feels true to you, right? So when you look up at me right now, it probably just seems to you that there's a cup in front of you, right? You have the sense, see, a representation of a cup 
that's so this yeah. is the pre because you know you use the term feel right. and that seems to be the big um, uh, word appropriation for thinking. Uh-huh. So whenever you're talking to somebody, yeah. it's like, well, I feel that. Right. And the problem with that is that whenever you go to rebut that, uh, everyone's entitled to their, to their feeling. Yes. And if yes. you say something that's contrary to what they feel, then right. that's viewed as a personal attack. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so it's definitely bad to, to view it as a personal attack, I think, if someone says something contrary to what seems true or feels true to you. But I think you could be entitled to stick to your guns because of the way things seem to you. So, um, I guess... Uh, is could it there cr- be more than one right answer? There could be, I but... Mean, the, the, the old yeah. famous saying that yeah. um, good men can look at the same event and draw yeah. two different right. set of conclusions. Right. Or maybe they even have... Yeah, so there's two, two problems we have. One is we have different seemings to begin with. Another is... Um, we have the same seemings, but we infer different things from them, right? Um, but I do think you're sometimes entitled to stick to your guns. Um, so uh, there's this group called Christian scientists who believe that the physical world is an illusion. Uh, and if a Christian scientist came in here and said, look, man, the physical world's an illusion, there's no cup, I would say, no, I'm going to stick to my guns. It seems to me that there's a physical cup in front of me, and I'm going to stick to that thing that seems true to me and not believe that it's an illusion. So, I agree you can be too stubborn in sticking to how things feel or seem to you when you get counter evidence, but I think some amount of sticking to your guns is is a good idea. Yeah? One thing I think that kind of strikes me when you say, I feel like, right. I think this, or feel it, it's like in a courtroom when you have circumstantial evidence. You can have evidence that he killed him, mm-hmm. but the judge, you know, it's going to get thrown out because it's circumstantial. It's not based on like, factual stuff that you can point to and nobody can refute it. Right. And I think that's that's kind of where you're going to run to when you start talking about religious things. Like, yeah. You can't prove that your belief Good. in religion is right because it's, it, right. you can't convince them. And this is it. not something that's going to convince other people, probably, right? Um, so I think of this as a good defensive strategy, but not a, so like, if someone's coming up to me and saying, hey man, you're crazy for being a Christian. Well, I would say, well, wait a minute, do you believe there's such a thing as properly basic beliefs? If so, why couldn't my belief that Jesus died for my sins be one of those properly basic beliefs? Now, but if I was trying to convince someone else to become a Christian, I would not use this strategy, because yeah, you're right, if, they're, if, if they don't have the seemings I have, then there, there's not a good reason for them to be convinced by it. Yeah, but I will use it to defend my myself if someone tells me I'm crazy or, or irrational. I'll say, wait, we all have properly basic beliefs. Here's one of mine, and and it, I believe it because it, it seems seems true to me. Can, can I interrupt here? Yeah. I just now had the realization that these 17 letters were written by a Christian father in order to support uh, his beliefs in biblical Christianity. It's amazing. It's just amazing um, as I began to think about these letters from that standpoint. So, those of you who, well, I hope can see it that way. Um, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Seems to me. Yeah, guys. Yeah, very good. <laughs> that throughout history, and uh, when you look at the various peoples mm-hmm. in history, that there has been that these various peoples have had a belief in a supreme being mm-hmm. or in some god, either the true god or some god that they believe in. I mean, you know, the Incas or or whoever. It seems to me that that's. True. And I think, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And what, what, or what's the case? So, so as, a, as a starting platform, it would seem to me that a, a basic belief in a God would be a good starting point. Good, yeah. So there's some, so Thomas Reed was a, philosopher, a Christian philosopher who said there are some principles of universal common sense where like almost all people in history accept something, then um, then that's like a good basis for a properly basic belief. So you could think that like, if almost everyone agreed to something, 
um, it, it could be a good um, a good starting point. Um, although that'll get you only in most a very minimal sort of a God, um, well, because there's so much disagreement about what different what God would be like. Yeah, so yeah. pretty evil God. Right. Yeah, you talk, yes. That's basic. You, you were, that's basic belief, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's a table. Yeah. My mother told me that it was a chair. Yeah. And back to what Paul was saying, you say the same thing for those religions, right? They believe one thing because that's what their mother told uh-huh. them. That's what they were raised. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. But I was raised Christian, so I'm thinking the way everybody else in this room is because that's the way we were yeah. raised. So it's the same thing with the table and the chair. Yeah. And, and somebody in the early class reminded us that she had been raised in the Missouri City Lutheran tradition and she had been taught that everybody else had it wrong. <laughs> and they, her particular brand was right. Yeah, absolutely. So th- there, is, there is a problem here of disagreement. So are you allowed to stick to your seemings when someone else has a counter seeming? Maybe that's kind of, So I am worried about this. Like, suppose I'd grown up Mormon. Well, probably I would have had Mormon uh, seemings or so, you know, and, and, and so, you know, am I allowed to stick to my guns with my Christian Where does this really? come in then? Yeah. It's still that object. Yeah. It's still a guy. Yeah, good. So, um, yeah, so in the case of the table and the chair, we're just using different words to get at the same thing. You're using chair to mean this, I'm using table to mean this. So there might be some of that going on in the religious case, too, but sometimes I think there are clear nonverbal differences, right? So take like polytheism. Some people think there's more than one God. I don't think that's just a wording difference at that point. Yeah. But you're right that there's probably sometimes where we're disagreeing merely about the way to use a word or something. Although I don't think that'll explain all religious disagreements. Yes. Yeah. I don't mean to offend, but this word seem to me yeah. is is really troubling to okay. me because. Um, I did not witness God's all of all of Jesus's um, uh, acts of miracles, miracles, all the miracles. Okay. Right. I wasn't there, right. but I believe in them. Right. So this word "see" again, I don't mean to offend, but to me, it's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Okay. You know, yeah. I, I don't. I guess I don't use that word often enough, but. I believe. Yeah. It doesn't seem but to But why do you believe it? I believe yeah. that I have. So one reason you might believe... So the reason I believe Jesus performed miracles is because I've had certain seemings when I'm worshiping. So I believe Jesus died for my sins, and I think, okay, then probably this Christian story is true. So probably he did perform those miracles. Um, but the seeming is kind of at the basis of it for me. So that's how I would get to the, those beliefs about the particular, uh, the particular miracles. Yeah. Are we going to get to the point of he is our he is my creator. I have a conscience, and I believe I have him in me mm-hmm. at birth and through baptism, mm-hmm. and at some point he's going to win. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to go through all of this if I really look inside of me because I don't have an explanation for creation or anything that somebody has told me this is how it happened. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an innate feeling of God in you. Yeah. Good. And so, like, like you have said, I can't. I can't uh, by my own students believe in Jesus right. Christ. Th- this innate feeling, some might call a seeming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll yeah. that so I'm 100% on board with what you were just saying. We have a sense, a sense of this stuff. Right? So some of it, it might be that the whole Christian story, you don't have a seeming like for every particular part of it. But if you have a seeming of certain core things, there's a creator... Jesus died for my sins. Maybe then you say, okay, then it's reasonable to believe the whole story. 
Um, may I tell you a seeming that I'm having? Yeah. Um, we've only talked about number one. Oh. Number two through five on the board, and I'd like to hear let's, about those. Let's go on. Yeah, good idea. Um, okay, so let's do the next strategy. So, okay, so you maybe you've seen, so the strategy I want to talk about now is called Pascal's Wager. And the basic idea... Oh, stop! Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Can't do that. Um, the, uh, oh. You don't want to skip this stuff. We can't skip oh. the census to the Natasha. Okay. And we certainly cannot skip, skip the okay. Natasha. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go back. Okay. Well, I'll, we'll do one more minute on this. Okay, so remember, planning has the idea that your beliefs are rational if they're formed by a properly functioning faculty or a properly functioning mind, right? So he, his idea was. There's a faculty that he called the Census Divinitatis that's designed to produce belief in God. So when, you, when you're walking on the beach and you see a beautiful sunset, it might just seem to you, ah, God must have made that, right? And planning those ideas, that's the Census Divinitatis, this faculty God built into us all that's functioning to produce belief in God. I'm yeah. seeing difference because to me... Sense is more powerful than seeing. I don't okay. like seeing. Yeah. But if there's a sense of God and there's a sense of his presence when yeah. you see a beautiful that's different than it seems yeah. to me he might be there. Yeah. It, it just doesn't help. Okay. It might be that uh, sense implies a more powerful sense yes. of uh, so these things can come in degrees. You can have something that like, kinda of feels right, but yeah. and you can have something that like really, it. really feels right. So yeah, so that's a good point. So, like, in the case of the table, it really, really seems obvious, right? And maybe the sense of God could be careful. like that. Careful. You're talking Latin senses. Yeah. Which is vision, right. hearing, belief in God. The, to me, this census to then is yeah. equates more to what these last two ladies have said. I don't have a seeming... I believe. Yeah. But but there's something there's some but but uh, she talked about like a sense that God is there. That's, and that sounds like there's something pre-belief that's producing the belief, right? You're having an experience of sense that God is there, and that's and you and then you believe, right? Um the other um okay, so then what about belief in Christianity in particular? And this is why you didn't so his idea there is um um, when we're functioning properly, you know, when we're functioning as we design, um, God designed us to have the Holy Spirit work within us um, to produce belief. Touchdown! Touchdown, good friends! Well, I said at the end of the, uh, part of my response at the end of the class was that this was a very redemptive part of this presentation because Plantinga uh, acknowledges the importance of the role of the Holy Spirit. Right. Good. So, so um, when you're prop when you're functioning properly, it might be that when you're in church worshiping or something, the Holy you know Absolutely. the Holy Spirit will work within you to produce uh, this belief in Christianity. Right. So, so in that case, the process, the prop, the functioning correctly process is the instigation of the Holy Spirit working on your mind to produce. The belief, right? Maybe and you could call it through a sense or through a seeming or whatever word you want to use. Is there some kind of ah, I see this now um, going on? Okay. Yes. When we're talking about the Holy Spirit, it's belief. It's not sense or feeling. What? Well, why? So it seems like people are skeptical of this idea that like the Holy Spirit could produce a um, a sense that causes a belief. Or what's what's wrong with that picture? The Holy Spirit produces this sense of the of the divine in you, or the sense that Jesus died for your sins, and that then produces the belief. The whole it becomes deeper as a belief. Yeah. It, well, a belief. It is, there is a belief at the end of the day. I mean, it's not but just like seeing a movie. Oh, that was great, and you watch that, and you forget it. I mean, it's, it's part of you, like Carol said. It's internal. So I'm not denying that you eventually believe it. I'm asking about how the belief came about. Um, so why do you... What, what's, what's going on in your mind that's leading to the belief? So in the case of the table, 
there's a visual experience, right? And in, in the case of belief in Christianity, it might be a sense or some kind of uh, experience like that that's produced by the Holy Spirit that leads to the belief. Well, yeah. I think the table example doesn't lead me to prayer. But if I'm out on the beach and I see a sunset, I sense that. Right. And I sense God, and I may stop right then and there and pray. Right. Yeah, that's because you. I would say that's because the sense caused you to believe. So the Holy Spirit has come to me. Yeah. I don't disagree with anything you just said. Okay. Well, let's go on to the next. Um. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand. So a properly basic belief is something that you're saying like you can't prove. Like, this is where you it's not based on any further argument or belief. Yeah, you don't. So yeah, so you, yeah, you don't really have a proof for it, but you're allowed. So that kind of equated with something that you take at faith. Yeah, you might think that. So, not all properly basic beliefs would you call faith. It's weird to say like I have faith. The cup is here because that's not an important enough matter. But yeah, I think there's a connection there between. Because it seems to me that faith certainly can influence your reasoning. Mm -hmm. If that's where you're starting from, then your reasoning is going to go from there. So I have faith that Christ died for my sins, and that's going to affect my reasoning about other But I think that reasoning can also strengthen, at least, your faith. Like, you can look at evidences, and I think that those are to look at rational evidences and say, well, this this plays into why I believe this. Not that you can prove God, but... That there are rational things you can see in the world. That's a great point. You can get more evidence for something that was properly basic. So it's properly basic for me, maybe, that there's a cup here. But then maybe also all of you tell me that. Well, now I have even more evidence for something that I already had as a properly basic belief. So you could have a properly basic belief that Christ died for your sins. And then you could get further evidence still further supporting that. Yeah. It's yours. You were entitled to believe it already, but now you have even more evidence for it. Yeah, that's a really, really good observation. Yeah. So, so think yeah. of the result when we join together in confessing the Nicene Creed, or the Apostles' Creed. What an effect that has, in when it's just not me, but when we say we believe. Yeah, good. That's the point. Okay. Yeah. Finally, we've honored your suggestion. <laughs> um, so the idea here is that you could have a practical reason to, to believe. So um, you can distinguish two senses of having a reason to believe something. So first, you know, suppose I hold up the cup. You have a lot of reason to believe it's there. You have a lot of evidence that it's there, right? You see it. Um, but Suppose I said, if you believe there isn't a cup there, I'll give you a thousand dollars. Do you have a reason to believe it's not there? Yes. In some sense, you do. It would get you a thousand dollars, but it's not an evidential reason. It's a practical reason. Um, there's, it, it helps you achieve a goal of yours of getting more, getting more of something good. So in some sense, you could have a reason to believe something that's not about evidence, it's about achieving a goal or getting a good thing. So uh, maybe you've seen something like this little little chart on the handout. So we can think of four possibilities. God exists or God doesn't exist, right? Um, are people, do some people not have a handout? Okay. Um, so God exists or God doesn't exist. If God doesn't exist, you might think it doesn't matter much whether you believe or not. Because you're going to get, when you die, you get nothing either way, right? But if God does exist, it really does matter whether you believe. If God does exist, and, you're, and you believe, and you have faith, you'll get heaven. If God, uh, does, if God exists and you don't have faith, You'll get, at least on the traditional view, eternal misery, right? So it looks like, what's your best bet in light of these four options? Buy insurance. <laughs> Maybe get some insurance on case he doesn't exist. But at least it looks like your best bet is to believe, right? Because what are you losing if you're wrong? Not much. Um, if, you're, if you don't believe in you're wrong, 
You lose a lot. You lose heaven. So a couple of initial remarks here. Um, Pascal, the guy who came up with this idea, he's not presenting this as an argument that you ought to just directly believe. Rather, the, the idea for him is you should see, oh, I have a practical reason to believe. It would be better for me to believe. And so you should engage in practices that will make it more likely that you'll come to believe. So he thought, I should go to church, I should pray, I should live amongst Christians, I should live in Christian community, because that will make it more likely that I'll be able to come to believe. Does that make sense? Um, so yeah, maybe it might be that you can't just stop believing uh Right, stop believing in the cup for $1,000. Maybe our minds don't work that way. You can't really do that. Um, and so maybe you couldn't just automatically start believing in Christianity tomorrow if you didn't think there was a good, any good evidence for it. But what you could do is you could pray, you could go to church, you could read the Bible, you could try to get yourself into a position to believe. You could do things that might if Christianity is true, activate that internal instigation of the Holy Spirit. You, know, you can go and you can sing the songs. You can, um, you can go to Sunday school. So the idea is you have reason to live a life that will make it more likely that you'll, be, you'll come to believe. You li live amongst Christians, right? Um, another thing he said was, actually, even if it turns out there is no God, you'll still be better off you'll still be better off believing in something, even if it turns out this is all we get. Um, so you can call this the earthly wager. My, a friend of mine from grad school wrote a paper that he called the earthly version of the wager. And he looked at all this evidence that religious people are on average happier than non-religious people because they have more of a sense of meaning, right? And, um, and he said, look, you actually don't even need to bring heaven into it. Just this life is enough to give you a practical reason to, to believe. You don't even need to bring heaven into the story. So I think I'm kind of attracted to that idea too, although I will uh, note this passage from St. Paul, um, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, uh, we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, so at least in Paul's context, maybe... That wasn't true. So that might depend on the society you're living in. If you're living in a society where Christians are being horribly persecuted or something, it might be that if for only this life, this life is all we had, you wouldn't be better off. But maybe in our society, um, uh, it looks like religious people tend to be happier in our society, so maybe here um, it would make sense to do the, the earthly wager. Um, Okay, any thoughts so far on this, this idea? This practical justification for either belief or at least trying to get yourself in a believing situation? Yeah? Well, because, um, you know, Christians, their, their salvation is the number, the biggest thing. Right. Hope, just hope for this life. I mean, hope for the life to come, but hope in this world. And so, yeah, people... They do tend to be happier those who go to church and read the Bible. And okay, so so you like the earthly wager? Even. Well, I don't yeah. like yeah. it, but I say it's a yeah. it's a good start. It's a good point. point. Yeah, and it, it produces hope in people. Right. which We sort of live in a hopeless world sometimes. Right, right, yeah, good, nice. Yes. Don't both of these, the Reformed epistemology and Pascal's wager, and tell, and tell me if I'm wrong. Um, leave out the idea, the possibility that there might be an objective truth that God exists and that He desires relationship with me, and that right. He has. And I think the, the story that hits me is the three men in the fiery furnace say, "We believe God will come right. and rescue us, but even, even if, if He, he does, doesn't, right, right. He's worthy." Right. Of my because he's worship. there because of yeah. who he is, yeah. not because of anything about me. Yeah, but be good. Out, so how do these of how do these strategies fit with the objective truth? Yeah. So in the case of Pascal's wager, it's holding on to the idea that it could be an objective truth, right? Look, uh, say I'm say you're currently an atheist. You're not sure there could be a heaven. That could be the objective truth, right? Mm -hmm. So hedge your, you know, 
what would make most sense? It would be to go to church and try to come to believe just in case that is the objective okay. truth. So in that case, you're exploiting the possibility. So that doesn't negate an object right. and a truth outside right. of myself. Now, going back to the Reformed epistemology, there they think um, if something uh, seems to you to be right, or if you're properly functioning and coming to believe it, on the planning aversion, um, then it's, there's a connection between that and objective truth. It's more likely. So, like, I believe that there's, yeah, go back to the table. <laughs> there's a table here because it seems to me, or I have the sense of it, or whatever the, the word you guys like the best is. Um, and I think that's pointing me to an objective truth. There really is a physical world here. So there is that. Okay. Yeah. Um, the uh, key, what might be behind your question is neither of these are good ways to convince people that this is the objective truth. And so the third strategy we'll look at tries to do that. But I agree with you, that's a weakness of both of these strategies. Um, but the Pascal's wager one just says you just need the possibility that this is the objective truth. Um, and then it makes sense for you to try and come to believe. Okay. Uh, so here's there's some objections to this idea. So you might have already thought this. This is the too many gods objection. And the thought here is, wait a minute. Different religions promise heaven. How am I going to, if I'm just trying to get heaven, and it's not based on like evidence, how am I going to pick which religion to follow, right? Um, and we can make up even more religious hypotheses than the actual religions, right? Um, so consider, for example, the hypothesis that there's a God who rewards atheists with eternal bliss and sends, sends theists to hell, right? Whoa! If that was the way, if that was the objective truth, I would not want to believe in God. That would be terrible to believe in God. So how do we figure out which bet to make? We're trying to, we're trying to increase our chances of going to heaven. How do you pick amongst the various religions? Right? So that's the worry. Um, so here's the response that I think you should give here. is just to say, well, pick the religion you think is most likely to be true. So even if you're an atheist, you might think some religions are more likely than other religions. You might think the fact that millions of people have followed a religion for a long time um, is at least some reason to think it might have something going for it. Um, so that might narrow your options down um, a bit. Um, and, so, and, and then if you think there's any religion that has more going for it than the others, well then pick that one. And if there's a tie, say you thought two religions were equal, like, well then you can just flip a coin or something at that, at that point. Um, but you can narrow it down by thinking about which ones are more likely to be true. Yeah? My objective is the whole line of reason, though, yeah. is we know all throughout the Old Testament where what got the is, uh, Jewish people into hot water with God is they worshipped idols. Yeah. Uh, because they went over... And they were hedging they, their bets. When they went yeah. out into the wilderness, they, they basically intermarried with people who were not of God. Right. Really, and they started in themselves believing these idols, and that's where God... Good. Tell me if you don't start yeah. through his prophets. If you don't start following me and getting rid yeah. of those other idols, you know, it's not going to be good for you. So, so that shows the failure of a certain strategy. One strategy would be, well, I'll follow Christianity and I'll follow these... these uh, you might think that's not going to work because God is a jealous God. Um, you're going to have to pick one, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's a good point. Um, another thing you could bring in here is how likely is it that you'll actually be able to come to believe this? For a lot of you, it's probably easier to believe uh, Missouri Synod Lutheranism than it would be Hinduism or something. Given your, you know your upbringing and background, you're not likely to be able to convert to certain religions. So it would be kind of pointless for you to try, and other religions would be easier for you to try. Okay. How, much, where, how are we on time here? Uh, we've got about seven minutes. Oh, okay. Um, another objection is this. Look, you should only believe based on the evidence. Practical benefits like going to heaven are not the right reason to believe something. So the, the objection here is uh, you shouldn't form your beliefs based on anything other than evidence, so this whole thing's on the wrong track. So two responses to that. Well, one, okay, but you can still go to church and pray and hope to get evidence. 
evidence. You can still read the Bible and hope to get evidence. You might not just form your belief right away, but you can still try to put yourself in a position where God could reveal himself to you, and you could get evidence. So that's one response there. The other response is, wait a minute. It's not always about... It's not always about the evidence, right? So, um, here's an, this is kind of a famous example of the gorge jumper. So Arnold is being chased by an axe murderer. His only hope of escape is to successfully jump a gorge. Um, but he's not sure he can make it. It's a long jump. But he knows if he doesn't have absolute confidence that he will make it, he'll check it out and he'll be killed. So his only hope is to believe that he'll make it. So he talks himself up into believing it and takes the jump. Was that a reasonable thing for him to do? In a sense, it seems like it was reasonable. It was the only way he could survive. His only hope. So you might think, no, it's not always all about the evidence. If your only chance at something really great, like survival or heaven, depends on getting yourself to believe something... That's a reason. That's a reason to do it. Um, okay. In the little bit of time we have left, I want to mention this third strategy. So, a weakness of this strategy is it doesn't get you all the way to Christian belief in particular. But it's an argument I've found has a lot of success in convincing people that there is some kind of a designer or a, a creator. Right? So, um, and I think it's a pretty good argument for that. So, this is called the fine-tuning argument. Um, fine-tuning means that the universe has certain features that had they only been very slightly different, we could not have biological life. We couldn't have life anything like we, what we know it as. Anything we can really imagine as, as life, right? Um, so I put a bunch of detailed examples on the handout, which you can look at on your own later if you want. But I'll just give you some basic examples. So one is the strength of gravity. If the strength of gravity was even slightly weaker or slightly stronger, we couldn't have gotten solar systems like ours that allow for life, right? But it's not just gravity. There are all these different forces like this. So like the strong nuclear force is another way. If it was just a little bit different, we couldn't have life. Now think about this. Um, if atheism is true, isn't it really surprising that all of these things just ended up perfectly fine-tuned so that we could have biological life? Wouldn't you just... It would be shocking. Like, what are the odds, right? We, we have to think we just got incredibly, incredibly lucky. But if God exists, or if there's some kind of a designer, a being, a, a person out there designing the universe, it wouldn't be so surprising. Because you'd expect, oh, one conscious being would, want, would care about life, would want life, right? Um, so you wouldn't be so surprised that, oh, gravity is just the right strength, and these other forces are just the right strength uh, to, get, to get life. Um, so uh, another nice thing about this argument is it bypasses the whole debate about evolution. Because all of these um, strengths of the different laws, right, the strength of gravity, um, that all had to be fixed, you know, to be set up right long before evolution would have even started working. So even if someone says evolution is why we have life, well, they still, that doesn't explain why the law of gravity is the, or why we have gravity at just the right strength and all these other forces at just the right strength. Um, so that, I think, is an argument that's pretty good um, for showing there's at least some, uh, or an objective truth, that there's some kind of a creator out there. Yeah. At this point, I'd like to jump sure. in. Sure, yeah. Um, the, uh, we obviously have not been in the Lutheran or the Missouri Synod silo today, and I would acknowledge that very much. Uh, we will be back in that silo next week, but I want to say a couple things, and I really want you to listen carefully. What we're dealing with today is called pre-evangelism. This is where you open up the possibility that there is a God. And that that God has um, uh, definite ways of being in the world. 
Um, this struggle with belief and fidelity goes to the Old Testament, uh, where God's people struggled to be faithful, and God's justice upon them was horrific. He destroyed the kingdom, I put them into exile, um, and the intertestamental period is a testimony to how, in spite of those very dark times, God worked in order to bring the people to the right point in history where, where, what happened? God, we believe that God chose to reveal himself in the incarnation. And as Christians, specifically as Lutherans, we should never lose the fact that God's revealing himself in Jesus Christ in the incarnation is the disruption in human history that provides hope for the world, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. Jesus had to struggle with people who believed in God. There was no lack of faith in God among the, the sects that, that, that were in evidence at that time. They all believed in God. The, the problem was, would they believe that Jesus was the Messiah? The turning point, the turning point was what? The turning point was Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came upon people and dramatically changed that group of disciples into the church. And we are the church. We are the community of faith and belief that has for 2,000 years struggled with what does it mean to believe in Father, yikes, Trinity, yes, Son and Holy Spirit. We struggle with that. The ecumenical creeds, um, Apostles' Creed, a century and a half later, the Nicene Creed, another century and a half, the Athanasian Creed, this struggle about who God is and how we define him continues into the present time. And if you think Luther was not, uh, his very life focused on the fulcrum of what it meant to believe in God. And he got caught in his own life with the guilt of his, his beggarliness in front of a just God. And he, he found what? He found the objective, note the word, the objective means of grace. Because Luther realized that he was a person of a lot of seemings, a lot of intuitions, a lot of which were just, which was so mercurial, which means that if he was feeling bad, he, he felt God would never love him. If he was feeling good, he didn't need God because he was God. He, in that polarity, he finally realized that it was finally the objective means of grace, which was God's word, and the sacraments. And that's why Luther, no Pentecostal, still believed that it was the Holy Spirit that provided that absolutely key function in order to bring people from not having faith to having faith in all its myriad forms. Jesus said faith <coughs> as small as a what? <laughs> you know, and we have... have built that seed into this boulder that we try to force down into people's lives and they choke on it because we have, we have destroyed what the essence of faith is and that is trusting promises that we cannot by our own reason or strength we can't do it by our own reason or strength and that's why we together uh, worship in a way that diminishes the emotional uh, uh, the way that we diminish um, and, and we, we don't we don't stake our faith on Lee Strobel the case for Christ, the case for faith, the case for creator. We don't base our faith on Francis Schaeffer or C.S. Lewis or C.K. Chesterton the great apologists we, Lutherans don't go there because we know it's not just a matter of, of, of cognitive putting it all together but we do know the importance of pre-evangelism. And that's what this is all about. In order to get people to the point where they are willing to acknowledge the fact that they don't have all the answers, and that when we proclaim the fact, the stuff that you repeated, that Jesus died for my sins, mm -hmm. you know, that message, 
and that God's that, that God loves me. Those are the two things you said this morning, and it, it, it's a Holy Spirit that works through that in order to create faith. Amen. <laughs> so next week we're back in the silence. No, seriously. And we need to be there. Because we honor that. We really do. Thank you, Philip. Let's close the prayer. Dear God, for this day, for this day and the power of our mind and, and all the questions, we pray that, that through this all we might continue to struggle. And especially for those who are rock solid in our faith, that we would be willing to reach out to our children and our grandchildren, to those around us who who live without compass and without hope. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to the King of Glory Church Education Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God and His people, grow in faith and love, and live through service and sharing. Visit us on the web at kogva.org.